Three, two, one, cue Leonard. Hi, I'm Leonard Malton, and this okay. is the movie Police. Today, we'll start with our video watch. Just re-released on video is the movie Gremlins, though I really can't imagine why. Now, I know some people found this movie fun, but me, I'd rather spend two hours having root canal work done. What's fun about a movie full of ugly, slimy, mean-spirited, gloppy little monsters who run amok and attack innocent people? Our moviegoers so desperate for entertainment that this one is trash and has for fun. Wait a minute! Just kidding! We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hey everybody, welcome back to Sorted Cinema. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1990's Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Written by Charles S. Haas and directed by the great Joe Dante. Remember the last time we told you not to feed them after midnight. We told you to keep them away from the light. And the most important warning of all, we told you to never, ever get them wet. You didn't listen. They're mutating. Sir, is the building on fire? No, no, that's a false alarm. Are you trying to panic New York City? Absolutely not. So the monsters are real? I didn't say that. Gremlins 2. The new batch. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. All right, that was a clip from Gremlins 2, the new batch directed by Joe Dante. Uh, I'm your host, Patrick Murphy. Joining me today, as always, is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? This is going to be a good one, Rick. Uh, This might be the greatest podcast ever recorded if only because of the movie we chose. This is one of the weirdest sequels of all time, I think, and a, a, a movie that studios will never forget uh, <laughs> for many reasons. Uh, but also joining us to talk about Gremlins 2 is Mariko McDonald. Hello! All right, I'm assuming you're a fan of this movie, Mariko. Otherwise, you wouldn't be on this this show. Um, I do, and I actually have a good analogy for this movie, which actually, once I figured that out, made me like it even more. Ah, okay, all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I picked this movie, and it's because it was having an anniversary. So it wasn't like I had some some cultural thing to tie it into or anything like that. I just, had, you know, I always look through movie anniversaries, and Gremlins 2 was having one, and I thought, oh my God, this is such a strange movie with so much to talk about. 
uh, we got to do this movie. So that was basically my reason for picking it. I do really, really like this movie. I think it is, it's one of the weirdest sequels of all time and thus making it one of the greatest sequels of all time in my mind, because it really stands out as completely different and not at all the same kind of movie as the first one. And in fact, it makes fun of it. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, this is about uh, the plot involves basically Billy and, uh, oh my, has moved to New York and, uh, um, Mogwai's owner, Gizmo's owner, dies, uh, and Gizmo finds his way to Billy, and they're involved with a whole bunch of gremlins in a big smart building that is uh, run by a megalomaniac, uh, who's probably a riff on Donald Trump and Ted Turner, um, kind of a combination yeah, between the two. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Chaos More likable than either of them, too, but... <laughs> oh, he's incredibly likable. I love that character. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he's such a positive, upbeat guy. Uh, yeah, so anyway, Chaos ensues. There are a boatload of Gremlins, but this movie, instead of playing it kind of like a straight horror like the original Gremlins, which is an amazing, great movie in its own right, this movie is, plays more like a satire and of of its own predecessor. Like, it openly mocks its own franchise, which is very funny and probably not at all what the studio intended. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's why I love this movie, and um, that is why I picked it, Rick. Yeah, so you think I dislike this movie. Now, listeners, it's really easy to get me ticked off on the podcast. You just need to make fun of one of my favorite movies, and I'll get really upset. The last time I recorded a podcast with Patrick, he said he didn't like The Howling. And I'm like a huge fan of Joe Dante. So it shouldn't come to a surprise to you, Patrick, that I love this movie. I think this is one of the greatest sequels of all time. I think this is one of the greatest horror comedies of all time. Uh, I think this movie is just batshit crazy and entertaining from start to finish. The The thing, Patrick, is that I had only seen this movie one time. And oh. Yeah, and so I, I watched it again, and here's, here's how I know I, I'm pretty sure I've only seen it one time. So I watched this movie on VHS. And when I watched it again earlier this week, um, there's one specific scene, which we'll talk about later, which is yes. somewhat changed. Yep. And so then I started doing some research and I realized, okay, so the original version I saw was the version that was made for uh, home video. And I had actually never seen the original theatrical cut. So I think we're all going to be very positive today. I think that uh, it could be argued that the first movie is so good. It's a self-contained classic that it didn't need a sequel. But I think mm -hmm. that's the whole point of Gremlins 2. Like, Joe Dante was sort of, like, convinced to do a sequel. And it took him so long to actually agree to, to actually film this movie. I think, you know, he set out to make a movie, like a sequel, that just... that I guess that criticized Hollywood's uh, obsession with making sequels. Because... The, the whole point in making a sequel is just to really make money. And so it succeeds has a meta commentary on Hollywood greed, but it's also just a really fun movie. And I was actually kind of surprised at how chaotic the movie is. <laughs> yes, yeah. Is. We were throwing the word madcap around a lot <laughs> while watching this movie. There's, it's no uh, coincidence that the very first thing you see in this movie is Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck Looney Tunes, because that is what this is, this movie is. It is a live action Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, I, it really primes you for all the cartoony. I it reminded me a lot too. I guess partly because of the puppets and also just the madcap pace was like the Muppets. Um, they're like the like most destructive version of the Muppets. 
<laughs> yes, that's exactly it. And I mean, there's a lot of things that are different about this. One. I mean, you, you, it definitely satirizes sequels. There's no question about it. It's also just seems to be a vehicle for everything that Joe Dante had a problem with in culture at the time, whether it was pop culture or not even a problem with everything that he found amusing or funny. And he riffs on so much stuff. It's just a, it's a very personal movie. He includes a ton of movie references, a ton of jokes about cable television, uh, a ton of jokes about smart technology, which is back then. I mean, this movie was way ahead of its time when it came to devising sort of that smart technology stuff concepts. I guess that is where Ted Turner comes in, right? Because the the character uh, who plays uh, Miss, uh, what's his name, Clamp. He he's he's like I, I would say he's about ninety five percent Donald Trump, but it is he is sort of like a mix between Ted Turner and Donald Trump. I think he is amazing in this movie, and from my understanding, he was supposed to play the role as a straight up villain, and for some reason, he just ended up being so likable that they they just decided to go with the flow because he has this like this this boyish charm to him, and I thought that was so refreshing. Uh, his character was the biggest surprise in rewatching this movie again. I I, I was really shocked to see. Um, it's not even like a character turn because he's he is who he is from the start of the movie. But I kind of expected him to be one of those typical villains that you'll just end up despising. That's not the case. No, you're rooting for this guy. You're rooting for him to help because he's there helping Billy too, and he seems to like generally like Billy. So at least as much as he can like anybody, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, it it was almost kind of a a riff, like a future. Uh, how do I say it? premonition of the sort of uh, evil but happy go lucky uh, startup founder, where he's just like really enthusiastic about everything, but like making no kind of thoughts about the effects of anything that he's doing, as long as he's making money and having fun. I think money is always. It's, it's a priority for him, but I and I do think he's naive, but I I do not think he's mean spirited or evil or or trying to actually harm anybody. You know, like I think like the, at the, the the movie when the movie ends, he starts talking about like a toy line and how he wants to like incorporate his ideas into the to toy line, which is actually not exactly like a good idea, but in his mind it is. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah, he's kind of a monster who doesn't know he's a monster and thus thinks he's sort of a good guy. And he is sort of a good guy. But you know, when he talks about uh, you know, Chinatown and having a parade to celebrate his new building down there and to show how much uh, like the the community down there appreciates his construction. He be I think he believes it. I think he genuinely believes that he's doing great things, but he is kind of wrecking stuff. <laughs> and... Well, I think that's what makes most villains interesting is if you don't you know no villain thinks they're the villain right they all right. think that they're awesome heroes of their own story um the other thing i wanted to bring up uh relating to the ted turner thing is there is a direct reference to uh tnt's habit of colorizing black and white movies mm-hmm um, and that was like a direct dig at, uh, at Ted Turner at the time, because that was around the time that they were doing the Turner Classic movies. And he was colorizing everything that didn't need to be colorized because he didn't think people would watch black and white movies. So, 
He is actually right, though, because they're like most people wouldn't watch black and white movies. It, it is now for sure. I, nine, back in 1990, I'm not I'm not sure it was as true, but uh, it was starting to become true. People were really liking the colorized versions of It's Wonderful Life, which they actually show a clip of in this movie. Um, yeah, it, it, it's that and the cable networks. The, the amount of channels, the archery channel, uh, all the oh, yeah. different stupid channels that they have in this thing. There's so many sight gags. I love the channel with the character who's clearly a riff on Grandpa Mon- uh, Monster. Yes. Yes, Grandpa Fred. Grandpa Fred, thank you. Yeah, so that w- that was like, the, you know, that's the thing about this movie. There's There's so much chaos and there's so many characters to follow. But the reason why it's easy to follow the chaos, the action, the characters is because it all takes place in this one building. And in some strange way, this movie kind of has the the template, the skeleton of like a home invasion movie. It's not necessarily a home, although we can argue that the owner of the building probably lives in the building and his home does get invaded. And yeah, so it's it's a really interesting structure for a screenplay for a movie. You know, you, you, you mentioned the opening with the Looney Tunes cartoon, and it actually bookends the film, too, right? And then within the film, which we're going to – I need to talk about this after the break because it's, like, my favorite scene. But the, the movie constantly breaks the fourth wall, which was kind of unheard of for a movie being released in 1989. I think – I mean, in many ways, the way it breaks the fourth wall is unheard of for movies now. I, I have not seen a movie – Ferris Bueller did it, right? And it burns there were the movies. wall to the ground, literally. <laughs> Ferris Bueller did it for a narrative device. It was so that he could sort of narrate that what was happening and explain the feelings of the character. This one does it for seemingly no reason at all, other than to to satirize stuff or to to make gags. Well, it's uh, like, almost like an escalation of the fourth wall breaking, where it starts to be self-referential, and then you have that the film burn and like. Hulk Hogan shows up and you're just like, what is this movie? Where am I? <laughs> well, I don't know if you, Rick, you obviously didn't see this movie in theaters. I did see this movie in theaters when I was a kid because I was a big fan of Gremlins. It, it's not like people were leaving the theater. People were a little confused, though. I do remember that. And the shadow puppets thing, it that's oh. when it dawns on everybody like, oh, oh, I see what's happening here. But we just, you know, you were thrown for a loop at the time. Like, What? <laughs> I would love to travel back in time and sit in a movie theater watching this movie on opening night because I get what you're saying, but there is a scene prior which includes Leonard Maltin, the famous TV critic, sorry, film critic. Yes. And on he, TV. <laughs> on TV, right? And he expresses his dislike for the original film, which, by the way, he actually wrote a negative review of the original movie. And they cast him in this movie playing himself, playing a film critic on TV who's given a bad review to the movie. Yes, <laughs> and then he, he he amends that review as he's being killed by gremlins. Um, yeah, no, there's a lot of stuff in here. You're right that it's just – there's also a conversation that references the first movie that is clearly sort of a fourth wall-breaking thing. Uh, obviously, fans had uh, you know picked apart the, the lore of gremlins, especially you know like the eating after midnight thing. Well, it's midnight somewhere. What does midnight constitute? And you, know, you have that guy in the control room. They're all laughing at Billy as he's explaining the rules. He's saying, yeah, well, what about if the gremlin's on a plane? They cross a time zone and he eats. Uh, what if he has food stuck in his teeth? You know, but he eats before he eats at eleven o'clock. But the food stuck in his teeth. You know, he swallows it after amazing. midnight. Yeah. It that to me is almost fourth wall breaking stuff too, because he's directly acknowledging the ridiculousness of the original concept. Even though the original movie played it straight and did it really, really well, and it totally works within that movie. 
it's funny that he's just outright saying, yeah, we know that was absolutely ridiculous. And so we're following it up with ridiculousness. You know what my biggest regret is? It's not ordering the Blu-ray because I, I've actually been thinking about this. Most of the movies we review on the podcast, I actually own a DVD and or Blu-ray copy of. Now I managed to get the DVD copy because it was super cheap, but I was told that the Blu-ray version has an incredible commentary by Joe Dante. And apparently it's like one of the best commentaries you'll ever hear for any movie. And this is one of those things where this, this is one of those Hollywood movies. Again, why I chose this movie, because it has such an interesting history. And it is fairly well known at this point that Joe Dante did not want to do this sequel. Uh, he, it, this, this movie is, was made six years after the original, original Gremlins because Dante didn't want to do a sequel. He, it was a really taxing time. He had a hard time working with the puppets. None, nothing really worked, kind of like the Spielberg and Jaws. Uh, or at least he felt it didn't work. Um, and he didn't really think that the movie needed a sequel, which we can also talk about. And I mean, I, you meant, you mentioned Rick and I completely agree that the first one does not need a sequel. Uh, so he, the only reason he, the, the studio tried to get their sequel done, could not get it done, returned to Dante and gave him full creative control, which depending on your perspective, if you're an audience member, that's awesome. And if you're Joe Dante, that's awesome. If you're a studio, that was probably not the right thing to do. But this is what resulted. He had full creative control, and he made the, a movie that is extremely personal. I'm glad we get movie, you know, that we got a movie like this. You don't see personal movies like this very often, especially for with major studio releases. Um, but I think that it, it was uh, something that studios will never do again. Not with a movie like that. Yeah, it's pretty unlikely. I mean, when you think about how the MCU is so carefully curated and controlled uh, and, and directors really aren't even allowed to put their personal stamps on stuff anymore, to, to fathom somebody like Joe Dante going crazy on a movie with a movie like Gremlins 2 and throwing everything but the kitchen sink in there. I mean, it's just any idea that they thought of, it seems like it went in. That doesn't, it isn't to say that this movie is, uh, we're, we're talking about how man, you know crazy it is and manic and you know all over the place and wacky. But it is very tightly structured. And the reason that all these characters can work is because there's craftsmanship in the writing and in the direction. Everything is properly introduced and it properly pays off. Even the little, little gags, like the shredder, the, sh the paper shredder is properly <laughs> introduced and then it grossly pays off. It, you know, We were calling for that one the entire movie as soon as we saw it was set in an office building because... That's like the hallmark of any 80s office movie is something has to happen with the paper shredder. Yeah. And, and he does a great job. Every it was little perfect. Thing, yeah. yeah. He sets it all up uh, so that you it will pay off and everything is understandable, even with all the chaos that's erupting all over the place, because there are a lot of gremlins in this. So you know who my least favorite character in this movie is? It's actually Gizmo. And I was a huge fan of Gizmo when I was a kid because Gizmo's like, you know, he's the central character of the first movie. He's so adorable and I love him. And in this movie, they decided to show a bit more of Gizmo, meaning like watching Gizmo run from like, you know, and showing like a far shot of his whole entire body, which was really weird. Weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very bizarre. And I give I give credit to Rick Baker and the whole entire effects team because, you know, they still did a pretty good job with the rest of the movie. But Gizmo in this movie, he's he doesn't really do much. I mean, at one point he dresses like Rambo, which is kind of cool, I guess. But they really do take the spotlight 
away from who is arguably the main character of the first movie, which I found really interesting. But what's weird is for some reason, and this applies to the first movie too, I really like Billy and even Kate. I find Zach Galligan is such a likable protagonist. Like his character is somewhat the straight man. He's not necessarily the most charismatic. He can be kind of boring, but he fits the role so perfectly. And I love the relationship and the chemistry between those two actors, Phoebe Cates and Zach Galligan. Yeah, I wanted to see more of their relationship, to tell you the truth. The more I watch that movie and the older I get, the more I actually want to see those two people interact more. Uh, I mean, they have a different dynamic. In many ways, they're both boy next door and girl next door. So there's there's not a whole lot of undercurrent between both of them. Although Kate has a little bit more because she gets to tell all these horrible stories about everything that happened to her on all different holidays. Uh, <laughs> which is another fantastic fourth wall breaking moment, I think. Oh, sort of, man. sort of. But yeah, I, 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 they're really, really, they're really well cast. So that even with their short amount or shorter amount of screen time, I think uh, they still really work well. Yeah, I wanted to not like Kate because she couldn't tell the difference between the weird uh, gremlin and Daffy. Mogwai and <laughs> Daffy and Gizmo. But like, I don't even remember if she met Gizmo in the first movie, and I had literally just watched it. So I was like, why is he sending her to go get the? thing that she's never even seen until it was a horrible green monster and like okay whatever movie i don't i'm not gonna interrogate you about this part i guess he assumed it would be the only furry gremlin in his office well yeah i guess that was a fair <laughs> assumption at the time he didn't realize that he that there was a possibility of a choice being made <laughs> hey man people change gizmo could have evolved could have changed you never know i mean the gremlins themselves do change they evolve within the movie yeah. I'm with you on Gizmo, though. I, I totally get what you're saying about Gizmo. Uh, we see a little too much of them. And it's kind of funny because uh, now I, I, I happened to watch also Red Letter Media's um, breakdown of this movie before I before we did this. Um, and they brought this up like in an interesting way. That there's You know, you see Gizmo right away at the very beginning of the movie. And like you said, Rick, you see him walking. You see his whole body. You see his very expressive face. And Rick Baker did an amazing job making a multitude of gremlins and very expressive gremlins in this movie. But uh, then later on when Billy, like, when Billy finds him and puts him in the toolbox, they do, like, the same reveal that they did in the original movie where he sort of puts his hands on the edge of the box and he sort of slowly comes out. Now, in the original movie, that was the first time you saw gizmo so that reveal sort of made sense and in this one they sort of mimic that shot at nearly exact same time of the movie and yet we've seen gizmo so much i'm not really sure what the point of that shot was unless it was just referencing the first movie the thing about the movie though is you know it's like again it's like it's like you take the star of the first movie and he's not really the star he's still in the movie and normally that would be a real no-no like that would hurt the movie big time but what they do here in this movie instead is you get like 30 40 50 200 new gremlins that each have their own unique personality and look like you can actually tell them apart like there's mohawk who i guess is like a riff on spike from like is this spike from the first movie Spike yeah. was the first Spike, yeah. right, yeah, okay. So this one, it's Mohawk. They're, they're, like, the thing about this movie is this movie ends with one of the characters deciding that he's going to let a gremlin rape him in the washroom. 
Like, that's how crazy this movie is for a Hollywood film. Yeah, Robert from from Star Trek. I was just like, this is so bizarre. What do you guys think of the Gremlins in this movie versus the Gremlins in the first movie? The first movie obviously had a different tone. It was more of a horror movie. So the Gremlins, they, they, they look pretty much the same in the first movie other than Spike. I think that's really the only one you could tell the difference, like who he is. Uh, because of his mohawk. Um, but these ones are obviously goofier, even though they still kill people. They they clearly are not meant to be as scary, even if there are a couple of, you know, sort of tense scenes, like with the spider grandma and stuff. They're, they're definitely clearly meant to be goofier. Did that approach work with you guys, or did it bug you a little bit? I liked it. Um, just the variety of, like, the facial sculpts and all that stuff, and differentiating all of the the different gremlins and it did feel kind of like there was like the human stuff and then the gremlin stuff like you know uh gizmo really had like his own arc through most of the movie which is why he was off on his own um but i do feel like they really improved all of the puppetry the facial animations and the little bits of blue screen and stuff like they were a little weird but um for the most part it did seem like there was a huge step up as far as uh the expressiveness and uh, that sort of thing yeah rick baker's effects are i mean his, his puppets are amazing in this movie i think that and this is just another example of how puppetry so much better than holds up so much better than cg i would so much rather watch these puppets going crazy than a whole bunch of cg gremlins bouncing off the walls oh my goodness that's kind of why i'm like super happy there aren't the talk on gremlins 3 is pretty much down to nothing now um but that's the thing like i kind of made this revelation while we were watching the film and the the idea about practical effects and these amazing puppets and you know when you're looking at a puppet or a miniature or something in a film you still get to be like wow how did they do that Mm-hmm. Where if you're looking at a piece of CGI, you're like, oh, it's CGI. Like, there's no sense of wonder or, you know, creativity in, in the viewing experience of something when you know it's just like, oh, there's just computers or whatever. I'm not dismissing the, the art or talent. I'm just talking about the viewer experience of experiencing it. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that has to do with the um, time and budget constraints that are put on the people doing uh, CGI. I don't think that anyone working in that industry is trying to do bad work, but I think that some people, because of the constraints that are put on, that's, you know, I don't think it always looks as good as it should. But here's the argument I'm going to make, though. The, the thing is, and I think Gremlins 2 is a perfect example that I can use, is it's it's because they use too much of CGI, right? And in this movie, mm-hmm. like, my big complaint is they use too much of the puppet effects where we get to see Gizmo running and it's a far shot and it looks so incredibly fake and odd, right? So it's kind of like the exact same thing. So, like, there are instances, there, there are... There are examples of when someone can use CGI, but for whatever reason, maybe it's the Hollywood studio producers or the director, who knows who it is. Maybe it's just the effects people. They go overboard and they they feel like they need to use the CGI for everything, which they don't, which is why I'm really interested to see Christopher Nolan's next movie. Well, it's because it's faster and cheaper. But it's not because Christopher Nolan's next movie, uh, Tenet, he actually decided to blow up an entire plane uh, because it was actually cheaper than using CGI, right? And so, so it depends on what the effect is, but it's usually it's actually more expensive. So, anyways, the point is, is that I agree with 
everything you guys are saying, especially about like in terms of like using, uh, you know, having the the the, the gremlins, the creatures in this case, each each have like their own identity like i won't necessarily say they're characters like i mean they are but we don't know much about these characters apart from they all just have like one specific i don't know trait or thing about them right but but they're still like characters within the movie so it's good to distinguish them between because especially because again it's so chaotic right so imagine if they all looked exactly the same it wouldn't have the same effect like if it's it's not just like for example there's one gremlin who turns into like a bat and he and then because of like the experiment that's given to him in the lab, um, you know, like things like that. And like then we have the main gremlin. And for some reason, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, uh, who actually speaks. Right. Like that yeah, adds that's, so that's much. Mohawk, right? No, no, no. It's not. No, Mohawk. no, no. It's Wait. I think they just call him Brainy or it's something brainy. like that. Yeah, I think it's brain. Really yes, just he's brainy. just brain. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. That was Tony Randall, the voice of him. Yeah. Yeah. And I like I like how. Because he has a voice, he speaks for all of the gremlins, and he's trying to address their problem and what they're trying to achieve, and yet what he's saying is like he's saying that they're all evil and they are a danger. It's, it's just really interesting to the point where he actually shoots one of the gremlins live on TV <laughs> after saying this, right? You know, Because he was being rude. <laughs> That's why uh yeah i i don't really know i i think that's kind of that's also part of the satire is this whole idea that the gremlins have any sort of purpose whatsoever because of course they're just supposed to create chaos uh within you know with you know run run havoc over all the technology and all that kind of stuff and make everything not work um yeah so i'm not sure that, what what that whole thing was about but it was a great way of getting them to gather into the lobby at the very end of the movie and it gives the movie again like a gremlin that talks and talks so eloquently like i know it was because of an experiment you know because of a, some sort of chemical that he drank but it uh, it's just such a it's such a weird thing another weird concept to put in this movie that takes away from the human characters the gremlins really are the star of this show unlike the first one where you could argue that billy and kate and and even the dog were uh, you know the big stars on gizmo um but the gremlins are the stars more so than the, the bad guys are the stars more so than the good guys in this movie it feels like Okay, and with that, I think we'll wrap up our general discussion of this movie. It's going to be very interesting to get into our five questions here. Uh, we're going to come back with that right after this clip. Okay, you guys, listen up. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Do I have to come up there myself? Do you think the Grimsters can stand up to the Hulkster? Well, if I were you, I'd run the rest of Gremlins too, right now. Sorry, folks. It won't happen again. All right, that was another clip from Gremlins 2, the new batch. Uh, we're at the point uh, of our podcast where we usually ask a few questions. We try to narrow things down, maybe come up with a few negatives. But first, during the break, uh, Mariko was telling us that she had an analogy that she was making with Gremlins 2 and something else, Mariko. Well, you were saying that this is probably the strangest sequel of all time. And I would hazard that it is the second strangest sequel of time after the very first horror sequel of all time and arguably the first horror comedy of all time, The Bride <laughs> of Frankenstein. Which is uh, my favorite movie of all time, by the way. 
Did you know that? Yeah, it's it's like number one. or Actually, Frankenstein is number one and Bride is number two. Although, I don't know, Dr. Pretorius kind of maybe two is number one. and But yeah. Um, so that, when I was able to really put that together, watching the movie and like, Joe Dante is like an old school monster kid. There's absolutely no way he made this movie without deliberately modeling parts of it on Bride of Frankenstein. Like, I just, I cannot believe that he didn't have that intent going into it. I can actually, I never thought about that before, but I can absolutely see that. And you're right, Dante obviously is, uh, you know, he leans heavily on a lot of old horror class- classics and references so many of them. You know, oh, yeah. They're... And there's tons of cameos. Like the guy from yeah. Thing from Another World is in it. Mm-hmm. And Christopher Lee. And even Christopher the... Lee holding a pod from the pod, Invasion of the Bison. Oh, Pod-y. my goodness. <laughs> and I, I noticed a Quatermass joke on one of the doors as well. Um, but yeah, like, the, like we were talking about uh, Brainy. You know, this very eloquent... Um, gremlin, you know, this monster who can speak really eloquently. And, you know, in Bride of Frankenstein is where we finally get to hear the monster speak. And, you know, he's trying to be eloquent and smoke cigars and whatever. And I was like, okay, like I keep seeing these things like Christopher Lee is Dr. Pretorius and his little weird experiments and like the miniature king and queen. And like, there's so many little things that I kept finding. I was like, oh yeah, and that's kind of like that. And that's kind of like that. So it it made me love the movie even more. I think you nailed it. I never thought about that stuff. It ties in a little too perfectly, I think, to be coincidence. It is pretty on the note. Like, yeah. I mean, just knowing what I know about Joe Dante, like, it it was like, well, obviously. (laughs) Now I got to go back and rewatch Bride of Frankenstein again to match all these things up. Uh All right. Well, with that, we're going to jump into our our questions here. Of course, we like to start out positive. I think we've been fairly positive about this movie anyway, but uh, we're going to keep positive and say, what is your favorite scene from Gremlins 2? Mariko, we'll go to you first. Uh, I feel like I need to think about that one for a second, but there's one thing that I, I wrote down and for some reason it just, it tickled me so much. I really enjoyed it, but there's like a shot for shot a recreation of the mask unveiling scene from the Phantom of the Opera for basically no reason in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And that really tickled me because I was like, there's no reason for it other than clearly Joe Dante thought it was hilarious. See, I thought it was because it was big on Broadway at the time and it takes place in New York. Actually, you're totally right. That does line up with like Phantom Mania. Oh man, I, I totally forgot that. I just like the part. I just like the part where the guy throws the acid in the face. Like it's just so uh, cruel. Yeah, the like, gremlins are so cruel. <laughs> anyway, actually, yeah, Rick. Actually, no, sorry, I have to take it back because really, it's uh, the bat scene, uh, which I like to think is kind of an homage to Cue the Winged Serpent, which is another one of my yes! favorite yes! weird old horror movies. It reminded me so much of it, just like the POV shots and stuff. It was very similar. Um, probably similar technology they were working with. And I mean, it's same New York streets and whatnot. Um, and then like it ending with it, like drying and becoming a gargoyle. Oh, that's my favorite scene. Damn it. You stole my scene, Mariko. You stole my scene. Q, <laughs> oh, no! Q is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's an amazing yeah! movie. Okay. And 
And he was like a lot of people mentioned Tim Burton's Batman, and I get it. But no, that entire sequence it was it was riffing off of Q by the great Larry Cohen. But I had a second pick, and my second pick, which I've been teasing since the start of the podcast, is when the movie completely breaks down. And in the case of the version I watched this week, the movie breaks down in a sense like you're watching a movie and a projector breaks down, and there's like a huge cigarette burn. And in the VHS version, it's the VHS cassette would break down, right? I first saw it on TV. You first saw it on TV, so what's a TV version? Uh, there was a bunch of stuff that was cut out. Like anything that's a little bit more gory or goopy was definitely cut out. And I actually had seen the sequel before the first one because my parents decided the first one wasn't a kid's movie, which is not. Uh, so I only saw the second one on TV. And then like years later, I went back and watched the first one. <laughs> I, I love the scene when the cinema projection booth just sort of breaks down. And then we get Hulk Hogan standing up. <laughs> At the height of Hulkamania, that was actually the first time where I was like, oh, oh, he is charismatic. Oh, okay. I guess I get it. Because I've never gotten Hulk Hogan, the appeal of Hulk Hogan. Oh, no, he's 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 not a nice person in real life, but he's charismatic on screen. Uh, But yeah, so he stands up and he breaks the fourth wall. He talks directly to us, the viewers. And. There's just something so ballsy about that scene in a Hollywood film that's a sequel. And once again, the whole entire sequel is making fun of the idea of making sequels. Um, but yeah, so those are hands down my two favorite scenes. It also has the greatest hand puppet Abraham Lincoln of all time. Oh, <laughs> which, yeah! <laughs> which would be impossible to make, I think. But <laughs> I don't know. I don't know maybe servers. somebody else. I don't know how they work. I want to see somebody... somebody message us with a abraham lincoln hand shadow puppet (laughs) i want to know how that's accomplished (laughs) yeah i was gonna go with that one rick um because i just think it represents the complete irreverence of this movie how it has zero uh not i shouldn't say respect it it has love for the original movie but it really doesn't uh it doesn't give any reverence to it whatsoever it's perfectly willing to tear it apart. Uh, outside of that, then, I am going to go with the uh, the scene up in the control room where where Billy is trying to explain what happened to Robert Picardo, who's sort of like, I guess he's the head of security, amongst other things. Like, he fires a guy for taking a cigarette break. Um, but he, uh, I guess he's pest control as well. But yeah, where Billy's explaining to everybody what the rules are, and they all start mocking him. And then all, as soon as that guy's finished mocking him about the the midnight eating thing uh gremlin bursts through the control panel and takes a big chunk out of him everybody's screaming and it's kind of a great to me that summarizes the movie this sort of uh satire of itself sort of humor and then some actual little bit of gory horror as well uh all contained right within that scene and uh, then the chaos erupts from there but it's kind of the last little break we get before uh complete madness all right, so if there was one thing you could change about Gremlins 2, what would it be? And Rick, I'm going to go to you first on this one so you don't get your idea stolen just in case. Oh, man, I got two choices, <laughs> though. This is bad. Do I really have to stick with just one? Maybe if your other choice hasn't happened at the by the time all of us have gone through this, then you can you can do a bonus choice. Okay, it's it's, it's the problem is, is the movie starts off on... A really bad scene. 
like, like I'm going to answer two questions in one here. Like, I just, I felt, I felt it was so weird, and you guys might appreciate this and like it, but it was so weird to show Key Luke, the actor, shows up. He's playing Mr. Wing, who's also in the original film. They visit his shop. He doesn't want to, like, sell his property. And then, and then what's-his-face is like, don't worry, he's going to die, like, soon. Did you hear the cough? It was so bizarre. It starts the movie, and then the guy dies, like, right away the next scene. So why even show it? Why not just start the guy's dead? Like, he died. That's how the movie starts. And Gizmo ends up in the hands of this dude. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that wouldn't have been the best way to start the movie. But I just thought it was so bizarre that they showed this guy for, like, maybe two minutes just so he dies. You know, I, I have a feeling it was because in earlier drafts of the screenplay that Robert Picardo and Clamp were going to be more, more villainous than they ended up actually being. And that would have been a good scene to set up their kind of cold-hearted business you know, monstrosity kind of thing. Uh, because it makes Picardo come off like a complete jerk from the very moment you first see him when he his foot comes out of the car and he refuses to step in the gutter and he he has to carefully make sure that his nice shoes don't get soiled by being in you know Chinatown. Um, I know, but that's that's what's weird about it is because when the movie started, that's what I was saying earlier in the podcast is I thought that guy was going to be a complete dick, and that's actually not the case. So. Because of the way it turned out and because of his, the way his character is so likable and charismatic, they could have changed that in post-production. I think, yeah. maybe. I, I'm with you there. The, the opening is kind of weak. And we didn't need to see as much of Gizmo running around. They could have figured out a better way. He, you're right. He could have just been in the lab. And Billy could have said, you know, how, how did you get here? You know, or something like that. And, you know, I have no idea. It doesn't really matter why Gizmo gets to the the the, the tower in my mind. I you know, that's not his part of his arc anyway. Although there's a little thing, you know, like him being bullied and bad stuff happening to him. They sort of try to introduce that in the beginning where, oh, uh, you know, he's just sitting there in his cage and all of a sudden a bulldozer comes through the wall and it's, the whole place is getting destroyed all around him. You know, bad luck gizmo, I guess. But um, it that, that part doesn't work as strong as later on when the other gremlins are bullying him, torturing him. And then he, then the Rambo arc really pays off where finally he's had enough, you know? Um, but yeah, I another aspect to all that, um, that I thought was interesting. It wasn't really explained at all in the film and like, maybe it wasn't meant to be there, but during the, the, one of the first scenes where Gizmo's being bullied by the other, uh, gremlins, he's wearing a black armband. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was like some kind of like a mourning thing for Mr. Wing. It was never explained. It, there is but, a brief throwaway line to that and that it is for Mr. Wing. Yeah. That is exactly what it's for. It is supposed to be mourning. And that's why they tear it off. Like as yeah. if it's done to strike. That I is a throwaway line. They would, they would really play on that a little bit more and you know, Gizmo's uh, relationship with Mr. Wing and that kind of thing. Like, I, I feel like instead of the standard sort of like, here's the greedy corporate guys and here's like the rundown Chinatown and, you know, maybe focusing more on that could have made a more interesting opening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll continue on. We may come back to Rick at some point here uh, with another change. Uh, Mariko, if there's one thing about this movie you could change, what would it be? As much as I love Dick Miller, I was still really confused as to what he and his wife's character were doing in this movie, other than 
like <laughs> Dick Miller needs to be in every Joe Dante movie. Like I, I felt that like that was really a stretch to get him into the movie. And it, it kind of took me out of it as much as like anything could take me out of like this ridiculousness. Um, it was a reunion, right? That's what they were there for. I thought were, he had to go to the doctor or something, but maybe I'm wrong. I like, I, I thought they the said the, like re- I, the reunion isn't until tomorrow. When they first show up at the apartment, uh, they, they say the reunion well, isn't until tomorrow. Well, why are they staying with Billy and Kate? They're not related to either of them. He serves one purpose. He he is our eyes for what happens outside of the apartment. Uh, not the apartment, the, the building. I know, but you, you could have used almost any other character from the first one for that, or even created a new character. Especially since Futterman... In my in everybody's eyes, Futterman died in the first movie. Well, <laughs> like, yeah, and there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they lived through that because it's made fairly obvious that they were dead, even though you never see their bodies. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I, I I chalk that again up to Joe Dante not caring because this movie wasn't supposed to be. It just isn't really a sequel to the first Gremlins movie. It's kind of its own beast. Yeah, and I I I get that, and it like. I mean, everything is a, indulging Joe Dante. Like, everything about this movie is just Joe Dante doing stuff he thinks is fun. And yeah. for the most part, I loved it. But for some stupid reason, that part, like, like I could buy all the other stuff, but why is he in New York? Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's the dumbest thing to nitpick on, but for some reason, that's that's the one I'm choosing. But he has more to do than Gizmo. Like he yes. actually has more scenes than Gizmo in this. That, movie. Well, that's the other thing. Is like, <laughs> and he plays an important part in the end. <laughs> he, he plays an important part in the end because he has to turn the hoses on. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Gizmo has nothing to do with it. With there actually are defeating no Gremlin. other characters that can hold a hose. <laughs> anyway, well, Marlo was too busy smoking cigarettes. <laughs> Uh, there's so much weird stuff in this movie it's really hard to even get into it in an hour like rick what did you think how what, how was the realism of the canadian restaurant okay that was my prop that was my second pick that was my second did you like you, you can like read you can read my mind i was like it was so okay like i've never been to a canadian restaurant that looked like that <laughs> i was like what is going on here that was my second pick. Like, as a Canadian, I could not help but laugh. But I was like, this is problematic. <laughs> like, I've never been to a restaurant like that at all. It was like every Canadian stereotype in one thing. <laughs> in one place, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, as that, it's kind of amazing in a way. Like, I didn't know what Molson's was, obviously, as a kid. I didn't know that that was a beer. So I had no idea what he was asking Billy at the time. <laughs> but, uh, my dad used to work for Bolson, so. and <laughs> the giant piece of taxidermy that's uh that's stuck between them like they can barely see each other at the table it's all just taxidermy and mounties that's amazing yeah there's a lot of so to me that was going to be uh there are a lot of little subplots that i won't say they won't pay off because like i said everything's structured pretty tight here and even the, most of the little subplots do pay off but I could have done without some of them, like Marla being attracted to or trying to seduce Billy. Didn't really need yeah, that. Yeah, it Billy was weird. It didn't make sense. And like, why is Billy being such a dumb dumb and not say anything? Because he's been with the same girl for, you know, they survived like a gremlin apocalypse. 
Exactly. And you, he, you'd and think so that they would maybe be able to say that they were together. It, like, I don't know. Yeah. He's just such an aw shucks, like I say, boy next door and girl next door. Um, I, yeah, but even that was like pushing it for me. <laughs> I mean. It is. And I, it didn't really need that because it didn't contribute anything to Billy's character, really. I would have liked to seen the relationship with him and Kate be developed a little bit more as opposed to... Marlo's fine as a character. I don't mind having her in here, but we didn't need that. Didn't need her... Isn't Marla based on an actual person? Well, it could be referencing Marla Maples, Donald Trump, one of Donald Trump's wives. That's it. Okay. Wait, one of his wives? How many wives did he have? I don't know. He said like three or four. I can't keep track of it. Yeah, he's on number three now. Marla was the one in between Ivanka and uh, the current Mrs. Trump. Okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so anyway, that was what I was going to pick. I brought up the Canadian restaurant scene because even though I think there's funny stuff in there, like the bad puns, the chocolate mousse is such a horrible pun that it's great, um, that uh, I don't think that the Marla thing, uh, like these little subplots are what kind of, and, and like what you said, Rick, the opening scene, I just don't think that the stuff with Mr. Wing was necessary, it could have been cut out, and we could have had just a tad more focus on the main characters, that's all. So that's what I'm going to go with. I can't even imagine a restaurant like that, a Canadian-themed restaurant, surviving in New York City. Oh, man, I wish... There's there... one in Orlando. It's really... The servers don't dress up. But no, in Walt Disney World, in the Canada Pavilion, there is a Canadian-themed steakhouse called Le Cellier that has uh, serves you all kinds of super overpriced poutines and uh, chocolate mousse with maple chocolate maple mousse um and it's it's kind of more done up like a wine cellar steak bar but you know there's still a an element of of chance and cheese to the whole thing so but yes there is a precedent for canadian themed restaurants which i just think is hilarious because especially like you know the kinds of ethnic restaurants you usually see in movies and stuff and you know how there's like one restaurant that they film all of the Chinese restaurants scenes in in Hollywood because it's the only one that still looks like a quote unquote Chinese restaurant. And then the idea of like an overly <laughs> themed Canadian restaurant just absolutely slays me. <laughs> it's them dressing up, the servers dressing up as Mounties that really sells the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> all right. With that in mind, uh, Mountie is clearly one of the MVPs of this, of that scene anyway. But uh, who is the MVP of the entire movie? Mariko will go to you first this time. Christopher Lee. And that's oh. probably on a personal note. However, on his introduction, his very first line is, This must be my malaria. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like just, I... You're my favorite, obviously, anyways, but yeah, yeah, I mean, he clearly stole every scene he was in. I know he's not a main character, but you put Chris Lee in your movie, I'm going to get very excited. The lab scenes are among the very, very best in the movie. There's no question, even though I didn't pick one of those as my favorite scene. Um, they are just jam-packed with weirdness and stuff. Uh, and do you think that Joe Dante just said, Christopher Lee, please be the most Christopher Lee that you've ever been? I, of course. 
Um, Rick, who is your MVP? This is tough because I want to say Joe Dante, but we always say mm. the director. But here's the thing, right? Joe Dante splits the credit for directing the movie with Chuck Jones, who directed the animation sequences. But then you have mm. Rick Baker, who was responsible for the special effects and the puppets. And I would say about like 85% of this movie is a bunch of gremlins running around. So therefore it relies heavily on, on effects to the point where there are hundreds, hundreds of gremlins in this movie. So I'm actually going to say Rick Baker, who also produced the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, uh, you, you stole mine. I think this movie doesn't work as well without the effects being so good. It's tough, though. It's close because the irreverence clearly comes from from Dante wanting to just do a bunch of crazy stuff, but it does not work without Baker's uh, puppets. Um, God, they're just, they're absolutely, they're so far, not not to, you know, go down on the, I can't remember who the effects guy was in the original Gremlins who designed the puppets, but, uh, and, and he did a fine job in that movie. I'm pretty sure that was also Rick Baker. Uh, Rick Baker was hired on for this one because they got a bigger budget. They had a much bigger budget for this movie. Baker... I can't remember. I can look that up really quick. Who the the guy was on the on the last one, but uh, on the first one, but it was not Baker. Um, Christopher Wallace, that was the uh, the original one. Okay. So he did a fine, a fine job, but Baker did great. Rick Baker didn't want to take the job, and the only reason why he said yes is because Joe Dante said that he would allow him to create as many different types of gremlins as he, his heart desired, which is why we get so many different gremlins here. Whereas he, yeah. if he, if he was hired to just sort of like replicate spike and gizmo from the first movie, his response was like, well, why do you need me then? Like, like there's nothing for me to do really. I'm just going to copy the, the, the work from Chris Wallace. No, what made it interesting, I'm sure, was being able to grow spider legs out of a gremlin and growing wings on a gremlin and, you know, all sorts of, and being able to make the faces, you know, the the, the goofy faces from the Three Stooges like gremlins, um, all that kind of stuff, I'm sure would have been a draw to Rick Baker. The electricity gremlin is amazing. Uh, that's an effect that, that still holds up, a fantastic effect, um, including when he's stuck on the phone just screaming at the elevator music that's playing <laughs> on hold music okay and you know what you know what i did not know and i only i only like realized this this week because it pops up on the credits like right away howie mandel voiced gizmo and i was like what? yeah but he the voiced gizmo in the original film too yeah. and i don't know why i've always wondered why did they need anybody special to voice gizmo because it's just clearly a modified voice like anybody could probably sound like gizmo if you ran through the right whatever i mean he's just saying mogwai <laughs> and billy but those are the only two words he really says i never got it maybe it was just a, an in joke between joe dante and howie mandel i don't know I'm well he sure. was doing like the weird high squeaky voice bobby stuff in his stand-up at that time so i don't know maybe he and dante were friends and he was like i oh, did the squeaky voice but yeah i guess so it's kind of one of those odd things that it doesn't make a like john claude van damme being in the predator suit or something you know um <laughs> Like stuff like that, it's, it just doesn't doesn't quite seem to fit. Uh, but yeah, anyway, that was mine as well. Uh, Joe Dante, obviously, uh, since you picked Rick Baker, I'm at least going to call out Dante because the idea you can sense that the ideas are his and the, the personal nature of the movie is his, and he's he lends the movie a ton of personality, which Rick Baker clearly drew from when he was making all of his different Gremlins. Um, 
So Dante definitely like I'm not gonna say that the the camera work's the most amazing in this movie. It's not the best. Like I would say Gremlins is uh, is a far more interesting cinematic achievement. Um, but this is an incredible blend of ideas into one movie that is a uh, very 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 different from the original Gremlins. Um, all right, so we come to the point where we want to know whether this movie is, passes the Howard Hawks test. A great movie is compl- comprised of three great scenes, at least three great scenes, and no bad ones. Rick, I have a feeling I already know what your answer is going to be for this. Does Gremlins 2 pass the Howard Hawks test? No, I, I really just do not think that the opening is a great opening. And the Canadian restaurant scene, I don't think it's a bad scene. It's just really, for me, it's the opening. Like, the rest of the movie is so bonkers and crazy and wild that it works, but the opening sort of clashes against the rest of the movie in terms of, like, tone and even in in terms of, like, the characters and who they are supposed to be. So I'm going to actually say no, but I do think this movie has about five great scenes. Like, great. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to say no as well. Uh, it doesn't pass the Howard Hawks test for being a great movie. It does pass my test for being a great movie uh, because I think it transcends a lot of uh, its flaws just because it's such a, <laughs> a singular vision of, of what a, a sequel shouldn't probably be. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, it does have things. It has too many flaws. I think there are even I think there are a couple of scenes that I would call I don't know, bad, bad. I would call them bad. Like I would cut them out immediately. So I'm actually curious. What do you think about the scene in which Gizmo dances to Fats Domino? Yeah, that's, that's a great example of one. I don't need that scene. I don't need <laughs> cutesy Gizmo or Gizmo uh, dancing. That's what I'm saying, it man. Doesn't... They ruined yeah. Gizmo in this movie. Like that's the the film's biggest flaw. Yeah, I, I honestly don't need that. So I'm totally fine cutting some of that stuff out. And like I said, the greatness of this movie transcends stuff like that. It rises above stuff like that, which is why it's a personal great movie. Mauricio, what do you think? Does it pat? Are there any scenes that you would call bad in this? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and if not flat out bad, like definitely there's, you know, it was the late '80s, early '90s. There's some stuff that is just problematic, like Robert Picardo agreeing just to get. Right. Like that's no, <laughs> like, you know, you, you got to pass cause it was a long time ago, but no, no, no. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. It is definitely one of those movies that like, just for pure, you know, sit down filmmaking, maybe it doesn't, you know, tick all the boxes, but as far as pure entertainment value, it completely, you know, knocks it out of the park. Yeah, I, I think it is is a movie that is personality over over cinema, you know, cinematics. I guess, um, not that it doesn't have some very cool stuff in it, but it uh, as far as you know, camera shots and stuff like that. But it is definitely more of a this is bonkers kind of thing, genius bonkers stuff. I mean, it's the kind of movie where Joe Tante actually makes a cameo appearance in the movie. <laughs> Right. I think so does Jerry is... Goldsmith. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know and in the ever... first one, Chuck Jones had a cameo. Yeah, that I know, but I didn't know about the composer. But I don't really know what he looks like. So. Yeah, I think it's in the the. He's like, oh, it's uh, at the bar. I oh can't no, remember. he's at the Froyo 
uh, counter. Okay. I've He's the guy who comments when the thing comes out, of, when the gremlin comes out of the candy at the Froyo place. All right. So uh, this is one of those movies we always try to find out, like, how, what a, what the base of a movie is. You know, we had, we had asked the question before, does a movie stand the test of time? Um, but I think that that, that can be covered in a, uh, under other questions. What is the audience for this movie going forward kind of thing? You mean like today? Today, from, from today on, on out, going forward from today. What, who is the audience? Who is this movie going to appeal to? Because it obviously has some dated references in it. There's no question about that. There are a lot of people who aren't going to get why the frozen yogurt thing was supposed to be funny. I don't even understand why that's funny, honestly. Because back then there was a whole thing about frozen yogurt, a craze frozen yogurt. It was supposed to be more healthy for you, but like, it's frozen yogurt. It's like, it's still a sugar. Like, I don't know, whatever. Does this come from internet movies that was trivia, or did you know this? Like, so am I, but I don't know this. Maybe it didn't hit in Quebec because, like, on the West Coast, obviously, it was like a total thing in the '80s and '90s. But yeah, yeah, I just remember it culturally, kind of being around. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was talking about frozen yogurt. It was it was one of those weird things. Uh, And even as you know, a teenager, I wanted frozen yogurt because everybody was into it. So stuff like that is dated. Does, can can this movie hold up to modern audience? Does it rely too much on you having seen the original Gremlins? Is this movie even entertaining to somebody who's never seen the original movie? Now, now. So, so you're saying that you're gonna like if I had to recommend this movie to someone without them watching the first movie? No, no. I'm saying who would you like? Would you recommend this movie to people without them having seen the first movie? Well, I guess you see. I, I would recommend the movie to anyone who likes the first movie. If you do not like the first movie, I can't imagine you liking the second movie. But that said, the it's weird because like this, like I mean, clearly anyone who's like a hardcore movie buff that loves horror films and horror comedies, I mean, that applies to any movie we, we discuss on the podcast. But for a general audience, like uh, I, you know, not to be mean here, but I, if I were to recommend this movie to say the people I work with, I wouldn't be shocked if maybe only one of them liked it at the radio station. And like, there's like 500 people that work at the radio station. Yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of the way I feel about it. So you said that you'd recommend it to anybody who liked the first movie. I think there are a lot of people who liked the first movie who did not like this movie at all because yeah, it's such a different tone. The tone is so completely different. Like it's, it, it's actually very hard to compare them in a lot of ways because of that. Mm hmm. He did not really make a sequel to Gremlins. He just made another movie that had Gremlins in it. it he it, basically made a parody of his own film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like and, he satirized his own movie. That's exactly what he did. <laughs> and what's interesting about this movie is it came out in 1989, if I'm not mistaken, right before like the 90s, and there was like a big shift in, or actually no, sorry, it was released in 1990, right? It was made in 89, but like. There was like a, you you know there was a huge shift in the nineties in terms of like the, the the movies in terms of like the tone, uh, the amount of violence, the subject matter they would cover. I mean like compare nineties movies to like eighties movies and like yes it was still nineteen ninety but there was especially a huge shift in the horror genre and I hate to say this but the nine the decade of the nineties was one of the worst for horror films. There are some great horror movies that came out in the nineties. But they're few and far between when you compare it to the 2000s and even the 80s and especially the 70s. So, you know, I would easily put Gremlins 2 as one of the great quote unquote horror films 
of the 90s. And I, I'm going to call it a horror film because it is still a creature feature, right? And there is, like, a lot of blood and gore. Yes, there's gore for sure. And, and it, yeah, well, it's blood. Like, when they put the gremlin through the shredder, that's <laughs> that's pretty gory. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that, that part wasn't in the TV version that I saw. <laughs> I highly doubt it. <laughs> I think it qualifies. Yeah, it's just that it's it's a weird one. People are either going to like all the references. I think you'll get a lot more out of this movie if you're, you are a movie buff. And uh, you obviously have to, to understand that there's a lot of winking at culture inside this and that the characters are caricatures for the most part. Uh, even Billy and Kate are almost caricatures of what they were in the first movie. There's not a lot of characterization of them in this movie. You just sort of have to know that they're, they're archetypes at this point uh, in Gremlins 2. They don't really evolve in any way. Um, they're not learning anything, and then we're not given any extra information about them whatsoever. By the way, Patrick, I, uh, I included Gremlins 2 on my list of the best movies released in 1990, which, by the way, is an incredible year for movies. But I feel like I put it too low on the list, and I feel like I want to revisit my list and move it up a bit. Yeah, it all depends on what you get out of it. You know, Some people are going to get a lot out of this. They're going to see sort of how special this movie was at the time and how special it would be now if can you imagine if marvel put out a movie that essentially mocked their movies i mean i know deadpool was sort of like that but marvel didn't put that out originally uh that was dc's actually doing a really good job of that stuff with their um animated superhero stuff uh they made a teen titans versus teen titans go that is just completely wacky self-referential stuff the entire movie Oh, okay. But again, it's on the animated superhero thing, so it's like a niche of a niche of a niche. So it's you know it's not getting the audience. It's, it's like a Marvel movie, right? You, you want to talk about creature features slash horror films that were released this year? This is the same year that gave us Tremors, Gremlins two, Exorcist three, which by the way is one of the best horror films ever made. Um, it was a really uh... in- interesting year. You don't like Exorcist three? It's great. I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't seen it. I only know it because of so the good. Jeffrey Dahmer reference. It is so <laughs> it's really good. So good. I just yeah. know that it was Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie. So really? maybe, maybe I, sh- I do need to check it out. Um, <laughs> anyhow, I mean. I saw Exorcist 2 and I did not like it. Uh, now, why didn't they use that as a pull quote on the box? Uh, that, <laughs> Exorcist 2 is a bad movie. Exorcist 3 is really good. Anyhow, uh, it's just okay, like. See, like a... I just assumed it was Diminishing Returns, but I'll. I'll... Okay, no, no, it it's fantastic. It fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. I, I remember when I, uh, I'm going to cut this out of the podcast, I convinced Simon to watch it after he just refused to watch it. And he's like, oh my God, this is like one of the best horror films ever. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's, it, it wasn't originally, didn't even have anything to do with The Exorcist originally. They just kind of threw that in at the end, but it, it still works really well. It's like a horror detective movie. Okay. And just to, just to round things out a little bit. <laughs> Rick, who's your favorite character from Gremlins 2? There's so many characters in this movie, so many Gremlins that you could choose from. I highly doubt it's going to be interesting if you pick one of the human characters, though there are a couple that I think are valid choices. Uh, who is your favorite character? Well, I've already praised John Glover's performance. I think he's incredible in the movie, but my favorite character is Brainy, the Gremlin. Um, I just yeah. think he brings the movie to life. He gives a voice to the Gremlins. And that's like the major difference with the Gremlins from the second film to the first film. Like the fact that one of them can actually speak. I mean, I've already mentioned the difference between Gizmo in the first film and the second film. That's a negative, but it's a plus in terms of like the Gremlins. So I'm going to say Brainy. 
And and sorry, and my least favorite is the gremlin who does not have a name, who survives and rapes Robert Picardo, <laughs> because that's just weird. Gremlin? Gremlin? Female gremlin? No? Okay. I'm sure she has a name, a character name. It's just never said in the actual movie, and I've never bothered to look it up. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> she's a weird one. Uh, Mariko, what yeah. about you? Um, Brainy is also really, really up there, but I think just be a little different. I'm going to say Grandpa Fred, because I just really enjoyed the little journey that his character went on. (laughs) What's Dracula doing talking about the news? Like, I, I really enjoyed that. It was just such silliness and also just such a loving homage to, you know, monster kids and the whole horror house thing that I, I just really enjoyed that. But his character arc is fantastic because he has this dream. Like we learn about how he wanted to be a news anchor and ends up doing these like weird child horror shows. And he actually lives out his dream. Like it's a really good character arc. Yeah, yeah. he's arguably one of the few with like a really consistent arc. So I, I really appreciate that. And yeah, just horror hosts in general. Like I'll always like a movie more for having one. <laughs> <laughs> You're pretty uh, much this movie was made for me. Like <laughs> weirdo monster kids who uh watch way too many Looney Tunes cartoons um and are very much into stop motion. Like that's that's who this movie was made for. It's like those <laughs> Venn diagrams, I think. Uh he is great. Anytime there's a horror movie host in there, like Fright Night or something, I feel like they need uh. more horror movie hosts in movies well they need more horror movie hosts in general it's a completely yes. dead industry it is dying and... yep. the midnight movie thing is, is dead yeah they do it's have one dead. on shutter but oh yeah it. well joe bob is like the only guy still doing it so yep yep uh all right so that's now you already brought up clamp i was gonna pick clamp but you sort of already brought him up he is my favorite character i think he's just sort of <laughs> he's just really out there He's so positive. I love the positivity and the get it done, like nature of his personality. And I love the way he's he, he he can handle himself in any situation. I mean, he gets into a fight with a gremlin and he wins, <laughs> you know. So okay. and then and then right after that, he's completely calm and he doesn't flip out or freak out or go crazy. He's just like, okay, we have a problem in this building. And we need to take care of it. <laughs> It's like he doesn't even care that this monster that nobody should have ever seen before is suddenly attacked and tried to kill him, and he had to put it through a shredder, uh, and he almost got his tie stuck and everything like that. Yeah, so he's just like, okay, we have we have something to deal with. We have an issue. Let's get it done, people. Uh, I, I like that. I like that in, in a movie like this where there, whenever there's a disaster, because this is kind of also a disaster movie, right? Like the Towering Inferno or something in a way. Yeah, for sure. So I like when there's a character in those kinds of movies who is the no-nonsense, okay, we have problems. Let's work to solve the problems. Um, Yeah, big fan of it. I was going to bring up the comparison to Towering Inferno, but I thought it would be a silly comparison, but now I feel feel good about myself because you did it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's a silly comparison at all. Like Like we were talking earlier about it being home invasion. It's like, raid gremlins edition or something (laughs) i mean not quite but you know i that's almost a movie i'd want to see (laughs) but i I know a lot of people do not want a third film and i understand why and 
But if they stay away from CGI, if they get the right director, they can still do something clever and cool. But there's like there's so much so much concern over it because this movie like it is a sequel that goes against the idea of making sequels. So if you were to make a sequel to this movie, how would that work? Like it's so bizarre. That's a, I, that's a great question to ask everybody. Like, okay, Marika, what would you do for a sequel? Well, I'd actually heard, I don't know if this is like film TV or if it's a comic book or something, but apparently there is some sort of a prequel story in development about Mr. Wing in China as a young man discovering the Mogwai. That sounds exactly what I do not want. Like I like, was going to say that I don't want to see a whole village of Mogwai. No, or yeah, it's like... I, it's, I, when they give an origin story to like Michael Myers or something like no yeah and it's coming because it's kind of apparently we had to look this up but apparently in the lore it is confirmed that they come from outer space which is a little disappointing frankly what what, what lore is that from yeah I look online like the whatever the wikipedia is I oh no or not wicked gizmo I get my Low furry creatures from the 80s mixed up. We found something that was specifically talking about Joe Dante's gremlins and like the weird kind of fan community that writes fan fiction about where in space they come from and stuff. I think the movies need to go forward and not backwards. I think it has to be set in current times and just tell another. I would like to see just a, a smaller gremlin story again, closer in nature to the first one. I don't think you try to imitate what the second one did. The second one stands on its own and it should just remain on its own as an anomaly. If you want to continue gremlins, make a gremlins horror movie. I, and yeah. if you want to continue the story, then Billy's the new Futterman, as far as I'm concerned. You know right? what, though? I, I, I honestly wouldn't want a, a sequel. And I actually just watched the most recent Chucky movie, and it was so bizarre. First of all, it's not good. But they even changed the look of the doll. And yeah. just watching it, it was just like, it just didn't feel like Child's Play. So No, it was not at all. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't understand what Child's Play the original movie was about, and they just tried to make a movie with a killer doll. It would have been better off not being Child's Play and just something else. Don't call to mind that first movie then. Um, but yeah, so and that's why, honestly, I'd, I'd, I hope they don't make a sequel to Gremlins or a reboot, which almost seems Yeah, like I, I feel like the only way to keep playing in the universe would be to, A, do like a hard, hard horror reboot with like an R and blood and people getting killed. Which I'm not saying I want, but at least it would be different enough that maybe you could pull an interesting story out of it. Or just go like full on fantasy kids movie. Like those are pretty much the only two ways that you could do this for a current audience and make it interesting, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, what you don't want to do is get some uh, fanboy to direct it either. Or fan oh, gosh. That would be the worst idea. The, the people who think like, oh, you know what? The Gremlins are really funny in Gremlins 2, so I'm going to have a bunch of funny Gremlins, but I like the horror from Gremlins 1 and kind of the small town setting, so we're going to take that. Those two things will not go together very well, and the movie will end up having a muddled tone. The reason Gremlins 1 works so well is because it knows what it wants to be, and Gremlins 2 works really well on its own because it knows what it wants to be. It, weren't, it wasn't made by fans. In fact, Joe Dante is kind of the opposite when he made, made Gremlins 2. So, That's true. Well, I think also, like, just, like, such a singular, quirky voice as, as Joe Dante, like, I don't... There aren't a lot of people who make the movies that he does. Or no. I can't really think of anyone who has the same mix of, like, 
very nasty horror sensibilities and complete goofiness. Yeah. Like, I don't know anyone else who does that. Well, he directed Piranha, and he also directed Inner Space. Yep. He did The Burbs. And Looney Tunes back in business. Uh, yeah. The back Burbs is a great sorry. example yeah. of cruelty and grossness combined with humor, like absurd humor. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, his last movie was really bad. <laughs> Daring the X. Yeah, yeah. It it happens. Get that one. I only watched it because I'm a huge fan of Anton Yelchin, uh, rest in peace. And it was, yeah, it's not good. Anyways. All right. Well, with that, we should probably wrap things up here. Um, that's enough gremlins to <laughs> talk. Uh, Mariko, where can we find you online? Uh, usually hanging out on the gram at Mariko MTL, M-A-R-I-K-O-M-T-L. All right. And uh, you can find me if I am online these days, which isn't very often, uh, <laughs> at Sword Cinema. Hopefully writing for Goomba Stomp again soon. Um, I just recently moved and went through uh You should of... uh, bring back your greatest scenes column. I was thinking about that the other day because I saw you promote the Jaws one since it was Jaws' anniversary. Um, and I was thinking of compiling another list of, of introduction, character introductions in movies. So... Um, yeah, I might do that. I might do that. I just gotta, now that I'm finally settled in my new apartment and uh, work this last month has been extremely busy and now it's going to slow down. So I'm hoping to be able to go back to everything again. Uh, Rick, where can we find you online? Over at Goombastomp.com, I handle the official Twitter account for Goombastomp, which is Goombastomp Mag. And I now have a brand new personal Twitter account, which is never once taken. Uh, you can like us on Facebook and you can listen to the podcast just about everywhere online from Spotify to iTunes to Google Play to Podbean to, of course, on the actual website, Goombastomp.com. Oh, and um, next week, I've decided we are going to review the original Candyman. Oh. That sounds good to me. Since we won't get that the the other the next the new Candy Man this summer, I'm assuming. All right, that's about. Oh, I was gonna say. All right, that's about wrap it up, and we'll see you guys next week. Wanna <coughs> talk a little bit about what's going on in this room? Because I think there are some fascinating ramifications here for the future. When you introduce genetic material of research quality to a life form such as ours, which is possessed of a, a sort of, a, I hesitate to use the word, atavism, but let us say a highly aggressive nature. For example, that fellow over near the, um, I believe that's a common bat of the order Choroptera, the only mammals, I might add, capable of flight.